You are listening to Pangea Cast, the digital voice of Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. We are a church that follows in the way of Jesus to inspire others in the way of love. Visit us in person on Sundays or online at seattlepangea.com. Today is pretty exciting for me because I am a nerd. Um, hopefully, you'll find some joy in this too. But uh, I, I absolutely love the Book of Revelation. I didn't used to. I I was confused by it. I was boggled by it. I still am in a lot of ways. But um, that's what we're doing. We're jumping into one of the weirdest pieces of literary um, creativity that the world has ever seen, and yet. I think what we're going to find is it's actually a lot less weird than we think it is. In fact, I think what we'll find is that um, it takes a lot of wisdom to pen something like this. And, and we're going to talk a lot about it. But first, let me talk about the title for a moment, The Dragon and the Sea. So, so in the book of Revelation, all kinds of characters emerge. And if you've never actually read the book of Revelation, hopefully this is like a tour of sort of what the book is doing. Um, But the dragon and the sea are two characters that represent something very important. And so the dragon in Revelation represents the devil, Satan, uh, you know, that bad guy. And I don't know, I I think he's going to feature a few times in this. But what what I want us to understand is um, the book of Revelation is about resisting this dragon that emerges as a key character. Um, the same is true of the sea. So the sea in the ancient world, if you've been around here for a while, you've heard me say this, the sea was understood as a place of chaos. And so it became associated with evil or demonic powers as well in the ancient consciousness. So when you went to sea, you knew that in going out on a boat, that the powers of evil were out to get you. That's why there's shipwrecks. That's why it's um, just disconcerting, to say the least. And so uh, what we have in the book of Revelation are these forces of evil that have to be dealt with, and they show up in all kinds of ways. And so, so that's the idea behind the dragon in the sea. And um, I love this image of the dragon, by the way. It's an Eastern image. And, and what I love about it is in the ancient world, you know, we have, what's that, how to train your your dragon? Is that a movie? Is that, how you, is that what it's called? How to Train Your Dragon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like two of them. Very cute, right? Uh, that, those dragons are big and bulky and have these like large bodies. Um, that's very Western in the dragon imagination. In the Eastern imagination, a dragon is a lot like a serpent. In fact, in the book of Revelation, they'll, they'll say Satan is that dragon, you know, that old serpent, um, and so, so it's really, uh, it, we have to go backwards to understand what's actually happening there. What I want to do this morning, though, is I want to talk about how the book of Revelation gives Jesus a bad name. It's pretty much my only goal. And I'm going to take us into the world of the text to do that. And um, I'm going to try and like just draw out some stuff that I think 
when we're talking about how we imagine God, if we get the book of Revelation wrong, we either do one of two things. We kind of put it to the side and pretend it's not there so that we feel really happy about God and then forget that there's blood and, you know, there's a sword that apparently Jesus is holding and there's blood all over him and what's going on, right? We're going to get to those images and other messages. So one option when you see those kind of violent images is to just say, you know what, I'm going to pretend that the last book of the Bible isn't there. There's really only 65 functionally for me. And actually, I'm really worried about a lot of the, the, the Hebrew Bible. And so a lot of that I'm going to kind of put over there. And so really, there's about 26 that I feel comfortable with. You know, you, like the, functionally, there's probably a lot of us. Except for, you know, about 80% of the Psalms that are nice. Uh, you know, we ignore the ones about babies being dashed upon rocks, of course, because that's sad. Um, but we, we do this with the Bible because we have to. What I want to do in this series is show you you don't have to when it comes to Revelation. In fact, I think Revelation can shape your spiritual imagination, and it can shape your political imagination. And, and so what I want to do is talk about, yeah, does Revelation really give Jesus a bad name? Well, if this picture reminds you of anything from your childhood, you may think so. Check this out. Yeah. One of those may have made an impact on your life if you grew up in Christianity. Now, if you did not grow up in Christianity and you stumbled upon these movies, um, you probably ended up thinking to yourself, movies that are produced by Christians are just not very good, right? Um, that, that's probably your conclusion. Now, if you grew up in the Christian church, especially more evangelical, conservative pockets of it, like I did and I know a lot of us did, um, if you're of a certain age, you remember the Kirk Cameron movie. If you're of a certain age, you remember a movie before the Kirk Cameron movie called The Thief in the Night, which that's old school. That's like getting crazy. I'm not going to even show a picture of that, right? That's like before um, we even knew that we could make the rapture cool and left behind. And then, right, um, Nick Cage comes out with his version, which is just totally weird. If, did anyone actually, raise your hand, please. Did you see the Nick Cage? Anybody? Couple, yeah. Oh, wow. Only a few of us. Okay, so, so the Nick Cage movie, if you can find it for free on something like Netflix, is so not worth an hour and a half of your life that you should see it because it's not worth it. Kind of like Sharknado, right? Like it's, it's this guilty thing. You shouldn't watch it because it's that bad. But oh, it's that good, you know? Like you just kind of say, ah, I love Christians of all stripes, even the ones who think this is awesome, you know? And it's just kind of one of those deals. So, so that's maybe some of the backdrop. And, and if that's what you're coming in here, you can, yeah, if this is your home church, you know this isn't how we roll. Um, but I want to be very clear, like, like the left behind stuff even if you don't think that the end of the world is coming and people are going to be evacuated out of airplanes and everything's going to go chaotic, it's going to stick in the back of your mind when you approach various passages in Revelation anyway. Have you ever, have you ever tried to read the Bible and you notice yourself like, oh, I can't get past the way I was trained to read this even though I don't like what's coming out of it? Anyone been there before? Like, like you, you see these violent, for instance, again, the violent images in Revelation, and, and you can't get past the fact that they just are violent, right? 
absolutely understandable. What we're going to try and do in this series is like retrain our imaginations for actually what the text is doing. And, and by the way, it is about the text. Like when we approach something like Revelation, we are wanting to actually engage the text on its own terms. So this isn't going to be me just like sugarcoating it. Like, oh, don't worry about that blood. It's cool, right? It's kind of like grape juice. No, come on now. We're going we're gonna to deal with it. But, but to be honest, um, it's a little scary. We're going to show a Simpsons clip. It's not that bad, but I saw a little kiddo. So um, about the apocalypse really quick, because I think we just, again, this is probably the imagery we have in our heads, okay? So, so here's a quick clip that maybe we need to unpack. <laughs> Everyone's gone. Oh, how embarrassing. Oh, we slept right through church. Eh, not the end of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, it's the apocalypse. What? They weren't clean underwear? Not anymore. It's the rapture, and I never knew true love. I never used those pizza coupons. Why aren't we ascending into heaven? Oh, right. The sins. (laughs) Where do you think you're going, Mindy? (laughs) Ooh, I smell barbecue. (laughs) Hey, look. That, my friends, is Revelation in a nutshell if you grew up in American Christianity. And so we are going to totally destroy that image. That's what this series is about. Um, The series will likely go until um, Easter Sunday, um, depending on what I'm sensing. By the way, when I plan sermon series, I'm not that, like, really organized guy, right? So some people in my, like, line of work or whatever, right? Like, like they're good at like, here's the whole teaching calendar. Here's where we're going. Dude, I was like three weeks ago, like, oh yeah, I have to like do something after the thing I'm doing. And, and, and this had been something that had resonated for a while. And so, so I said, okay, let's step into it. But the honest truth is, I know I have stuff I, I feel really compelled to talk about until Easter. And depending on the feedback I'm hearing in the community, it's really how I sense like how long or how short these things go. And so it's possible we'll go until after Easter, but we'll feel it out along the way. Um, so does Revelation give Jesus a bad name? Well, let's talk about Revelation this morning a little bit. I want to unpack a few ideas here. So first of all, this is how it starts, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is where its fancy title comes from, but it's also, I think, the most important verse in the entire book. Because what what we have done unintentionally is we've let it be the revelation of the end of the world. We've let it be the, uh, the revelation of the four horsemen of the apocalypse that are flaming and coming to get the Simpsons, right? Like, like we've let it be the revelation of something that feels completely contradictory to the rest of the New Testament. 
And what we want to do is actually challenge that. And so every week, we're going to come back to a summary sentence. Now, now the summary statement that I'm going to give you today is only useful if it is filled in with other things that aren't said. Does that make sense? So I'm going to give you a statement to sort of like, oh yeah, this is what this is probably about, right? Again, this is my opinion. This is kind of um, my, my way of approaching this book, but this will be helpful, I think. So I want to tell us that perhaps Revelation is, the, the last book of the Bible is a revelation of Jesus to John for the church against the empire during the first century. By the end of this series, I hope you can rattle that off. A revelation of Jesus to John for the church against the empire during the first century. If you can memorize that slogan, next time you're, you're at the dinner table with a friend or a family member, and they're telling you about, man, have you ever thought about the rapture? I read this thing about Israel this week, and they did this thing and that thing and the other. I think it's coming. You can say, well... Have you ever thought that maybe it's a revelation of Jesus to John for the church against the empire during the first century, right? And that'll be your answer. And then you'll be like, what? And then, and then you can like move on to sports, right? So, so, so that, I really hope this is helpful. But no things, like for instance, when I say against the empire, I'm not just speaking about a governmental system in the first century. I'm speaking of the dragon that is empowering that system. I'm speaking of all of the things that are spiritual, that are fueling and funding those sorts of injustices that we'll look at. And at the same time, I am talking about this Roman reality that the writer of Revelation finds himself in. And so hopefully what you'll get out of this is the ability to see how to read scripture in its world and then see if it pays off in the end if we do that. So let's read it. Sound good? Weirdest book in the Bible, as they often say. It starts like this. It'll be on the screen. You can also find it at the end of a Bible. Here it is. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Let's pause there for a moment. Just notice a couple of things. It starts by saying it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then it also says, by the way, some of this stuff is going to happen very soon. Just hold that in your mind for a moment, and we'll get to why those kind of things matter. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and what, who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. This isn't lofty, happy language. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth because the kings of the earth have no power over this Jesus. Imagine going into 
um, Emperor Domitian's chambers and saying, hey, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, and that includes you. Doesn't work very well, does it? Like in our American context, we could say that uh, to any president we've ever had, Trump, Obama, it doesn't matter. Any president could, yeah, and then say, well, yeah, of course, because God is the king of the world. Really. But that's just civil religion. That's just us playing with Jesus' language, right? In, in reality, in the first century especially, th- this is subversive stuff. This is saying, you think you're in charge, but there's someone else who's actually in charge. The way you run the world isn't the way I run the world. And it's so important that we really get that. To him who loves us. To him who loves us. And has freed us. From our sins by his blood. And has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This small chunk of text is so loaded that I could, I could have easily just landed on one line in any of the verses because there's so much happening here. We could have just sat in the fact that whatever John has to say is a revelation of Jesus who loved us and freed us. We could just stop right there. We could talk about that for the next hour. That, that's reality to John. And so everything he writes is coming through that grid. And if, if we start to think weird things, like maybe he ate a weird mushroom when he was marooned on that island, we actually disrupt the beauty of what he's about to say. I think John, and we're going to talk a lot about John for the next few minutes. Not only was John in his right mind, he was like in the zone with Jesus when he does this, when he writes this down. So who is this guy? Who's John? So um, quick thing, right? So many scholars have talked about this. Um, How many of you have heard that the guy who wrote Revelation is the guy who wrote John's gospel and those letters that are attributed to John? How many of you have heard this before, right? So, so it's the same guy. We actually, in theology, have a, a category called Johannine literature. Can you say that, Johannine? Yeah. One of those words that's almost worthless, right? Um, but it's a, a Bible word. And, and so really what happens in a lot of study is like John, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation all become one body of literature that gets studied in scholarship. Interestingly enough, stylistically, they couldn't be further from different, right? Um, The book of Revelation is choppy, messy, 
like not good Greek. Can I just put that into your mind, right? So, so whoever wrote Revelation, Greek is not their first language. I would venture to guess it might not even be their second language. It is um, full of um, a lot of Hebraic kinds of idioms and stuff. Like, like you just get the sense that this person is writing it and, and they're doing a fabulous job, but they're not like, you know, Aristotle or Plato writing these grand, like if you want like beautiful Greek in the New Testament, read uh, the book of Acts. Acts is very like stylistic Greek. This is not, this is choppy, it's messy, um, but it's good. Why, why is that even helpful? Well, a couple of things. Um, we've talked about John being the same John. Nowhere in this book does it claim that it's the same John. And if we, we look at history, it gets a little funny, right? So by the second century, there's a few church father types that are like, hey, I'm pretty sure it's John, the, you know, the John of the gospel and the one that Jesus loved and all this stuff. And, and then like, we, we kind of just say, oh, okay, sure. If this is in fact that John, it's really interesting because we, we believe it was written in the mid-90s of the first century. So this is the latest thing that we have probably. Some people want to put Acts in the second century. That's a bunch of hooey. Don't listen to that, right? So, so, so this is probably the latest thing we have. But, but here's what is so fascinating. In the first century, this would mean that John, the disciple of Jesus, was into his 80s when he was exiled to this island. How long do people live in modern day? Does someone know the average? I don't, but it's around there, I'm guessing. And back in the day, people just died. Do you know what I mean? Like, like we didn't have good hospitals. We didn't have modern medicine. We didn't have awesome nurses that cared about their patients. And Yeah, I see nurses in the crowd, so I can, like, butter them up a little bit because they deserve it. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, we, it, it was like, if you live to be 80, this was a big deal. John, if he was a disciple of Jesus, is likely well into his 80s by the time this book is written. So, so that's one caution against it. Um, and so we really don't know who this guy is. In fact, he only sort of identifies himself as a prophet in one verse. That's all he says. And that he's from these churches in this region called Asia Minor, which we'll look at in a second. So what do we do with that? Well, I think it's okay that we don't know exactly who he is, but we have a bit of a guesstimate. I want to reconstruct a narrative for you. Now, now, anytime you reconstruct history, you need to know something. It is a reconstruction. I'm not telling you history as it was recorded by video camera. Even that would be a reconstruction because your eyes have to see it, right? So what I'm doing is I'm saying, based on the best scholarship that we have at the moment, this is what a lot of scholars are saying, right? You following that? I want to I make that very clear because some people I notice when they teach the Bible say, we know from history that we don't. We don't. We have clues from history that this may be the case, okay? But I'm going to give you my best, my best shot at it. So what we know about John is that he is in the island of Patmos. And what we know about him is that, well, essentially... He is probably by himself. Some scholars think he's actually working on a rock quarry that, you know, this 80-year-old dude, if it's 
John, the disciple of Jesus, has a chisel you know, all day long because health has been so good to him that he's just got the, the guns to do it. You, you know, and again, if it's John, if it's that John, it doesn't really ruin anything about it. It's just I want us to really think about every part of what we're reading. And John has this dynamic experience with God. I want to show you sort of a grid for thinking about this for a moment. Next little line, next slide here. Yeah, yeah. So, so there is a, a path of communication that we're going to see in this book. God through Jesus, through an angel to John. Now, there's all kinds of reasons why this is important. But what I want us to notice is this, that this is not unheard of in the biblical tradition, that angels speak for God. This happens all the time. In fact, God shows up as an angel throughout the, the Hebrew Bible, right? Uh, what I want you to notice is that this, although there's like layers to it, like God the Father, Jesus the Son, to an angel, to John, right? I, I want you to notice that this is actually a very imminent and intimate way that John is receiving what he's receiving. And uh, I can imagine John saying, look, I have no authority except God is telling me this. In our day, those are the people you run from, <laughs> right? Those are the people that, you know, I died the other day and I went to heaven. And I was there and Jesus told me I was the best. And that's awesome. I hope that's true. But, but we, don't, we don't really like believe these things very naturally, right? Well, John says, look, I, I didn't have any other authority except God was speaking to me when I was marooned on this island. Paul has a similar kind of statement. He, Paul will say, look, I, my authority comes from the fact that Jesus taught me what I know and the apostles affirmed what Jesus taught, right? Like, and so, so this is very intimate stuff. And we've got to see this as John's own intimate unpacking of his relationship with Jesus. But John is an exile person. John is a refugee. John is this refugee in exile. And, and I want to remind us about why this could be the case. And now this is a historical reconstruction bit. Based on what we know about the language of Revelation, right? It's very Semitic, very like choppy. And based on what we know about what happened er, few, a few years earlier, a few decades earlier, we think he started in Jerusalem. Can someone, oh, I'm going to get teachery. I don't do this all the time. Can someone guess why John, as a disciple of Jesus in Jerusalem, might have migrated to a different region? What gigantic historical event takes place in the first century that reshapes the entire landscape of the ancient world for Jewish people? Huh? Yep, 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 yeah, you're all saying the same. Yes, the destruction of Jerusalem, absolutely, right? In 70 CE, the whole place is leveled, and in Mark chapter 13 and its parallels, Jesus has predicted this is going to happen. In Mark chapter 13, written sometime in the 60s, um, we have a prophecy from Jesus that says, look, the, the armies are going to come, and when you see all this stuff happening, it's going to be like there's violent earthquakes. It's going to be like there's stars falling from the sky. All of this is political language. Jesus says, run for your flipping life, <laughs> right? Get out of Dodge. Run away, right? Run away. You know, with the, anyway, someone got that. 
And, and, and John, quite possibly, scholars say, was part of this Jewish migration that we have historical evidence for that left Jerusalem as a result of the war and were refugees. And they run for their lives. And you can imagine Jesus following Jewish people in the first century who many of them were either there or heard this directly from apostles that were there. When they saw all this stuff happen that Jesus had predicted, they were like, uh, yeah, we didn't really know what he meant by this happening in our generation, but dude, let's get out of Dodge. It is very possible that John is a refugee who starts in Israel. Israel's getting leveled. He runs for his life as a young follower of Jesus, ends up in Asia Minor. The church is already spreading. Paul had planted seeds there already and churches and stuff is already happening. And as he is reared as a refugee in this very different Roman environment, he gets a little bit snarky. He gets a little bit bold. All of a sudden, this marginalized person realizes, oh, wow, in Jesus, I can be empowered. There's no empire that has any power over my life when Jesus is king. And he starts saying stuff. And he starts getting all the churches kind of fired up. And local authorities notice this and say, uh, yeah, he's a problem. You know, we can barely understand him, but we're pretty sure he's a problem. You go work at the rock quarry, right? Get out of here. And so they send him this refugee who's like, I, I don't belong here. This place is weird, right? Everyone's worshiping emperors and there's all this stuff going on. And, and this refugee from Israel gets sent to this little island off the coast. Now, let me show you a map of what this would have been like. So, so, the, the circle is Jerusalem, and the arrow is pointing to the Asia Minor area, and one of those little islands kind of towards the south is the island of Patmos. So he would have literally had to travel around that hook to get there, or the dangerous thing to do, of course, would be travel by boat. But although this looks like a very small distance, notice that this is basically the entire Roman Empire during the first century. And this shows you the spread of Christianity during the first and second century. So that's not an insignificant flight that he's had to take. And he's gone from refugee to refugee who has been exiled to an island with a bunch of rocks. Empires don't change a lot. Empires tend to be inhospitable to those people who don't fit their style and mold. Empires tend to be inhospitable to, I don't know, refugees who are running for their lives. Empires tend to be very inhospitable to children who had no choice of their own and landed in their empire out of flight for their lives, for better opportunity, only to find out when they're an adult that they're not appreciated as part of the host culture. We might even notice that such a person might be kicked out of said host culture if they don't have the appropriate paperwork. 
being a refugee is normative for first century Christians. It is not the exception. If you are not a marginalized person, you have a step to take to understand the New Testament that a marginalized person will not have to take as, as far. If you have a U.S. passport, you have more safety and security than the guy who wrote the last book of the Bible. That's the path he likely took. And I'm going to show you one more slide. We're going to zoom in here, I think. It's the next one. Well, no, actually, I'll show you the zoom in in a second. I've shown this before in one other talk. But this event is so catastrophic that the Roman Empire, for 25 years, will mint coinage, making fun of Jewish people who have been exiled out of Jerusalem because they leveled the place to the ground. Those pesky rebels Look at them flee for their lives. Look at us pillage, rape, and kill their children and women. This coinage, especially on the left, you'll see a palm tree, right? And on the right is a woman who is a Jewish woman who is mourning. And then you'll see on the left a Roman soldier. And what you can't see in this picture that is clearer in other depictions of this coin is there is a staff which I'm going to use technical language and you can figure out what it means, is a staff that is positioned stylistically in a phallic position because the kind of victory they had over their land was a lot like the metaphors we use for it actually coming true too. You follow? That's John's reality. Even if he wasn't from Israel, he's seeing the people of God depicted like that over and over again. This guy is a refugee. This guy has been exiled. Eugene Boring, which is the most boring of all the scholars, says this. He says, um, just to be clear about what I'm saying, he is originally a Palestinian, a representative of pre-70 Palestinian Jewish Christianity. Do you think the book of Revelation has anything to say to our lives and world yet? Wonder if John would have spoken for the dreamers. I wonder if John would have spoken for the refugees. I wonder who John would have spoken against and spoken for. If you need a new political imagination in the 21st century that is rooted in the person of Jesus and an experience of Jesus, not abstract ethics that Jesus taught, but a person, a personal God. If you want politics that match up with the kind of life that Jesus wants for you, Revelation is your window into that intersection. It is a book of resistance. It is a book of transformation. If you separate those two things, you get a political cause that eventually is going to burn out or become a hateful cause. Or you get a spiritual cause that's so spiritual that it's detached from the real world. And John in Revelation says those things belong together. This is what the region looks like, just to give you an idea. And um, those are the cities we'll see 
come up over and over again. And so, John is in exile, 37 miles off the southwestern coast of Turkey. He is pounding rocks. He is hanging out. It's about 96 CE. Domitian is the emperor of the world. Domitian is crazy. I mean, we'll talk more about him, but he is crazy. Like, just out of his mind, ready to kill people because it's fun. I mean, that kind of wild. And in the midst of that backstory, John sees Jesus. John has a poetic vision of Jesus of Nazareth, the resurrected embodiment of Israel's God. John's poetic vision is going to frighten us a little at times. But it is not designed primarily as fun movie material. He's entering a specific genre that other Jewish writers have utilized during this period called apocalyptic literature, which uses crazy, wild images to communicate very real, tangible realities. He's not on mushrooms. He's a good literary person stepping in. And maybe his Greek's a little broken, but he knows his genre. He knows the images. He knows what he wants to say. And as Eugene Peterson says about this John, he says, this guy is a poet. And a poet uses words. My favorite quote ever, so I've quoted like 10 times here probably. A poet uses words not to explain something, not to describe something, but to make something. Poet in Greek means maker. Poetry is not the language of objective explanation, but the language of the imagination. It makes an image such, it makes an image of reality in such a way as to invite our participation in it. As we step into this book, I want to invite us to have that posture. What does it invite us to step into? What does it mean to participate with? What does it mean to see Jesus more clearly because of the wild images we're going to encounter rather than feeling like we're distanced from that Jesus. And if we were just to think about John's own circumstance, having fled for his life likely, finding himself in the middle of a rock quarry, in the middle of the first century island of Patmos, it reminds me that many of us know what it's like to feel isolated and alone. And I wonder if there's ever been a season in your life where, where you felt isolated, you felt alone, you felt like you weren't sure what was next. Maybe you had a big decision coming up. Maybe you had something. Maybe it was actually very, very painful like it would have been for John. And in the unknowing, in the questioning, you were surprised by a gentle voice. And that voice eventually became clear that that was God, that God was meeting you in that exile. God was meeting you in that space. I think N.T. Wright puts it very well. He says, exile has given him time to pray, to reflect, 
and now to receive the most explosive vision of God's power and love. In exile, we are invited to see Jesus more, I'm going to use the word, vividly. Do you want to know what Jesus is like? Ask yourself where you feel like you're lost. Ask yourself where you feel like you're in this in-between space in your life, where things aren't all together. And ask yourself if, if, if you were to really sit in that and, and meditate from that posture of brokenness, that posture of I don't have it together, that posture of I don't know what to do here next. What would it be like to notice Jesus disrupting the exile of that one part of your life and giving you an explosive vision of love and acceptance to empower you to move forward. That's what revelation is at its core. It is the beautiful work of Jesus stepping into the worst of circumstances, saying, even here, even here, even here, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to show you how beautiful and explosive my love really is for you and for all the people that call me king, that call me Lord.